All right, we will go ahead and get going here. Thank you all for being here. I see some familiar faces and see some new faces, and so we're glad you're all here. This is kind of our first night of the new semester, new year, meeting together for our Bible study. Uh, we took a few, few weeks of a break over the holidays, and I was going to ask if anybody did anything especially fun or unique, or if you got any, anybody get a special gift or give a special gift. Yes. You had a baby? That's pretty special. I can't think of anything more special. There, and the baby's here. Yeah. One month old. In church. Way to go. One month old tomorrow. Way to go. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think anybody can top that, but... <laughs> Might as well just start. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being here. Tonight was our first night to have a meal... Uh, we hadn't done the meals for a couple weeks, yeah. And the Brinkmans, I don't know if they can hear me, and their helpers did a fantastic job. So thank you to everybody for doing that. Um, so what we do here is we kind of go back over what we covered the previous Sunday. So we look at the same text, the sermon, um, but it's not just again. I will often try to pick something and focus on it, maybe that got discarded and didn't make it in the sermon. And I also will pause and ask questions, and we usually have really good discussion. And so, uh, you know, you're welcome to do that. And the, le the less you talk, the more I talk, and then you really will just hear the sermon all over again. <laughs> so uh, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. Uh, Father, we thank you for, for a good group here tonight, even in, in light of the weather, and uh, we lift up our time. I also think about other activities going on in the building. I uh, think about the uh, the Iwanas and the kids, and I also think especially about the youth, and Brandon, uh, tonight's his first night as our youth minister on a Wednesday night. So we just pray for, for good fruit uh, for the ministries that are going on here, that you'd be honored, your people would be equipped. And uh, it would honor you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in looking at the book of Ezra. So for those of you who are really new, uh, the sermon series, we're going book by book, which is unique. But I normally go through uh, one book over several weeks or months. This sermon series is each week a different book. And so this past Sunday we were in Ezra, so therefore we're in Ezra tonight. And uh, I'm just highlighting several truths that we see in Ezra, uh, maybe summary statements. Number one, we see a faithful God. God is faithful. I think that's a pretty major theme, obviously, in the Bible, but maybe especially in Ezra. Uh, the book of Ezra picks up where Second Chronicles ends. And in fact, interestingly, Second Chronicles ends and Ezra begins verbatim. It's, it's, it's interesting how identical it is, and I want to read it to you just so you hear it. Sometimes if I just say it, you know, it doesn't have quite the impact as if I actually show you and you read it. So, so look at Second Chronicles 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now look over at Ezra. Chapter 1, verse 1. See if this sounds familiar. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. So a lot of similarities between the two books and a lot of similarities with Nehemiah as well. In fact, historically, some people think it's the same author 
of all three books. And some people think that author is Ezra. That's kind of the tradition. Um, and I don't know if that's for sure the case, but I do know it's written in the same time period by probably people who knew each other and, uh, and, and, and clearly, you know, using each other's texts and, 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 and they're in each other's books. So we're going to see, for example, when we look at Nehemiah, Ezra is going to show up in Nehemiah. So a lot of overlap. And um, notice that it mentions in verse 1, Jeremiah. Cyrus, king of Persia, is mentioned in several different prophets, including Jeremiah. Or I'm sorry, Jeremiah makes reference to this, and he's quoted in Ezra. Uh, I don't think that Jeremiah mentions Cyrus by name. But notice it says in verse 1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. In other words, Ezra saying, the Lord told us what, that the events that are happening, he told us this was going to happen. In other words, he's in control. That's the point. He's in control to such an extent, he knew this would happen, and he prophesied about it. He talked about it through the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, where does Jeremiah talk about this? I mentioned the verse on Sunday, Jeremiah 29, 11 talks about the 70-year exile in Babylon, and then God's people would be returned. So I think what Ezra is saying is, hey, these events that happened with Cyrus allowing God's people to go back, God, God's in control. God told us this was going to happen. This is happening in fulfillment of what God said would happen. In other words, God's in control. And <clears throat> I think it's interesting to note that Cyrus doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to allow you guys to go. Right? That'd be one thing. That would be amazing. I'm going to allow you. You're free. You can go back and rebuild. But that's not what he says. He's like saying, you must go back. He's telling them. Like, he's passionate about it. Right? What, what's, give me an example of something we see here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that reveals he's excited about this. Verse 2, he has charged me to build him a house. Whoever is among you of all his people, verse 3, may his God be with him and let him go up. That's actually a, that's not just I'm going to let you. That's actually, you know, I think that's like third person imperative. Let him. He, he must. He must go up. You need to go up. So it, this is pretty remarkable. And he's saying we're going to resource you. Like not just I'm going to allow you. We're going to resource it. Right? Look at verse 4. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, gold, goods, beasts, free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Like, give them money, support the endeavor. Wow, it's a pagan king. He refers to God as Yahweh. In verse 2, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is usually an indication it's Yahweh. And then notice he says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, he says, I'm only in control here because Yahweh put me in control. <laughs> That's a remarkable statement. You know, you don't even see God's people making statements that profound. And so it's incredible. And the question is, how do you explain this? A Persian king, a pagan king, making these kinds of profound statements, telling God's people, go up. Like, how do you possibly explain that? And I think the answer is chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord did it. The Lord worked through a pagan king. Um, so God's in control. That's the point. And then, of course, in chapter 4, we have opposition to the building program. The building program gets put on pause for 16 years. That's a long time for a project to get put on pause, right? I'm sure God's people are thinking, what are we doing? Why did we do this? You know, what's, what's going on here? 16 years on pause, and there's a group that's opposing them. There's always a group opposing God's people, right? From the very beginning, the serpent and Eve, and there's a conflict, and there's always conflict. That's part of the promise. That's part of the fall. Here's conflict. There's opposition, and the, and the opposition goes to the person in charge, which is no longer Cyrus because he's dead. So now it's a new king, Darius. And they go to Darius and they go, hey, there's this group of people down here and they're trying to rebuild and they're going to come back and it's going to be a threat to you. So you need to stop it out. And Darius says, well, let me look into this. So he goes back and checks previous you know, records and 
makes a decision and makes a ruling. Look at Ezra chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. This is his response after researching it, thinking about it. What's his decision? Ezra 6, verse 7. Listen to how strong this language is. Let the work on this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid by these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, or burnt offering of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let them be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters, alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there, O any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem, I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Wow. What are the odds that the first king, Cyrus, was going to say what he said? Not, and the odds are not very good. What are the odds that not only he, but another king, 16 years later, is going to issue a very similar edict in favor of God's people. Like this strong. What are the odds? You know, of course, the answer is, if God changes the heart of a king, <laughs> the odds are pretty good, right? And if God doesn't change the heart of a king, I'd say there's no way. Like, there's, there's no way to explain it. So we see God's control. Let me show you a couple of other examples. Uh, verse 22. And they kept the feet. This is chapter 6, verse 22. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The Lord turned the heart of the king. I'll be honest with you all, when I read that uh, this past week in preparation, and I, said, I read Assyria, I immediately said, what? That sounds weird. Assyria? Assyria was the group that conquered the northern kingdom, and then Babylon conquered the southern kingdom, and was in charge. Why Assyria? So I went and did a little research, and a couple different commentaries suggested maybe a couple different options. Um, one said, you know, the Persian Empire included what was once called Assyria. So, so you know, it's not an anachronism. The Bible is not saying Assyria was in power. It's just a reference to the one who's in control of all that region, including the Assyrian region. Um, another another uh, comment, this is it's, it's kind of a continuation of just the same kind of uh, foreign nation. The point, whether it's Assyria, Babylon, Persia, whatever, it's these outsiders who God uses for however he wants to use. When it's, when it's Assyria and Babylon, God uses them to judge his people. When it's Persia, God uses them to bless his people. But the point is, God uses kings, kingdoms, nations. He does what he wants. He does what he will to accomplish his plans, his purposes for his people. And that's the point. God is in control. Uh, finally, let me show you one other uh, passage. Ezra, in, in chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. Once Ezra arrives... Ezra makes another strong statement that talks about the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God. God's the one who's doing this. Chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So notice he says in verse 27, the Lord put this into the heart of the king to do this. And then in verse 28, the hand of the Lord was on me. So you know, there's no other explanation, but God was in control. God was faithful to his people. He fulfilled his promise. What was the promise? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this land. 
And when they were unfaithful, he removes them from the land. But even then he promises, I'm going to return you to the land. 70-year exile, I'll return you. I'll restore you. So we can look back and see God's sovereignty. We can see his faithfulness to his people. And first question for you, what are some examples of promises that we've been given in the Bible that we can cling to, trust in, trust God will be faithful to fulfill? You know, he's not necessarily telling us we're going to be exiled for 70 years and then return to rebuild, right? That's not, that's not a promise he's made to us. But he has made other promises to us. What are some examples of promises he's made to us that we can cling to today? Absolutely. The promise of eternal life, that we will live eternally with him. And we just have to trust him for that. We have to trust he will be faithful to fulfill that promise to us. We have no empirical evidence, per se, that we're going to live eternally. But we have God's word telling us so we can trust it. So that's a, gr- that's a great example. Yes, we have a promise that Jesus will return. Big promises of the New Testament. I will not leave you. Just as I came to you, I will come again. And, and really what we're supposed to be looking forward to is that, that coming, that second appearing, the second coming of Christ. Very good. Resurrection. Resurrection. Our future resurrection. Yes. At his second coming, there will be a future resurrection. We will be resurrected bodies, resurrected with spirit, and have uh, live life the way it's meant to be lived. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, right on. And we get, to, we get to be the recipients of that promise and become sons and daughters of Abraham. Absolutely. Good point. Yes, sir. Did you have a, a point? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Right on. That's good. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us and he's promised us he'll be with us. It's good. Never leave you, forsake you. you. Yeah, absolutely. Any other? These are all good examples. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Very good. Yeah, I remember memorizing that one pretty early on. That's one of those that you memorize, and it's a good one, because you're reminded when you're tempted, I got a promise here, God will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. He'll provide a way out from underneath it. I also think about First uh, John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Another one that we learn to memorize early on, a good one to memorize. Very good. Any other thoughts on that? All right, here's a second question related to this. Um, from the perspective of God's people at the time, it might not have felt like God was being very faithful. Like if you were one of the ones who were exiled out, or you were one to live for 70 years in Babylon, like somebody lived their 70-year life in Babylon, right? Or you lived most of your life and then got to return thinking, oh, we're going to go back to the uh, Holy Land, and you get back and it takes... 16 years just to rebuild the temple. Uh, That's a long period of time. So the people in the midst of it are probably not thinking, wow, you know, behold the faithfulness of God. We look back and go, wow, changing the hearts of kings and bringing the people back and rebuilding. And we read it and say, amen, look at the faithfulness of God. I think if you put yourself in their shoes at the time, they're still dealing with life. They're still dealing with you know, an oppressive, potentially oppressive. They're not in. They're not a sovereign nation, right? This isn't like the good old days when, when they had control of the land. There's, there's force. Babylon fall. Syria fall. Persia. I mean, who's next? And the next king can come in, and treat us like Assyria did, right? It just, the the kings change. The kingdoms change. So here's my question. What are some examples of ways that for us we, like them, may not 
see or feel the faithfulness of God today? Right? What are some examples of ways that just like they may not have at the time, we can look back and say God was faithful to them. But they may not have felt it. What are some examples of ways that we may not? You just told me a bunch of promises, and they're right and true and good. But what are ways that we may not feel those promises today? Well, it seems like evil is prospering right now. Yeah. If you look around, it seems like the headlines suggest there's a lot. Evil seems to be winning a lot more than good. Even just common sense seems to be losing the day lately. Mm-hmm. So we look at the world not trusting in the Lord. So we, we see that it's he's being unfaithful. He's really not. So it's on us. Right. From our perspective, yeah. we're not looking at it from a big perspective. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. He just said, to, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're looking at the world and the circumstances, and we're not seeing God. So we say, well, he must not be faithful. And he is. He always is. Right. I get. So the problem is sometimes on it's us. A heart issue. Heart issue of seeing the world with faith. Yeah. Well, that's natural. That's our natural tendency is looking at what's tangible right in front of us. Right. Abraham looked and he saw Sarah's barren. Right. I'm an old man. Right. And that's why in Colossians it says, keep your eyes on things above, not on things on the earth. Right, it's good. So we'll end up discouraged and defeated. Right. We have a natural instinct to just trust only what I, mean, what I can see. And having eyes of faith involves seeing more, seeing bigger picture. But it's not always easy. Why not? Yes, sir. Yeah. So when you're the one that's in the middle of death, death of loved ones, sickness, um, it's really hard to feel goodness here. It's hard to, like, I know it. I believe God's faithful here, but it's just, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, that's a great example of, it's it's hard. And the chaos in our society is should not be surprising. Mm-hmm. We're told that this stuff is going to happen. Right. It happened in the first century, all the centuries. Right. Yeah. We have to be told time and again to stand firm and be faithful. Right. We kind of have impulse to kind of expect order, beauty, good, and 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 that's built into us. But but you're right. There's a pattern of since Genesis three of there's constant. There's always a battle, always a battle raging. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. How can there be anything good here? And I, th- I think you're, as you're talking, it reminds me of so many of the Psalms. Like, why, God? Where are you? Why do the innocent seem to be being punished and the and the evil seem to be prospering? Like you, you can look at the world and see uh, there can there can there there's a lot of injustices, and the psalm we're not the first people to feel that and wrestle with that. I think it's encouraging to say God's people have been wrestling with this, asking these questions, basically from day one. Why? How long? Where are you? And so it's a, it is a right, normal, I would even say healthy impulse to, to, to wrestle with it. Because otherwise we're just being, un, what's that? Somebody, I thought somebody tossed around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or I was going to say just dishonest, you know. Yeah. Any thoughts, Doug? 
Yeah, yeah, good point. Would you be interested in sharing uh, your story about missionaries? I'm sorry for calling on you. I was, I was wondering if you'd be interested in sharing your story about the mission. Was there, were there missionaries in your life? Yes, sir. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I, no, I apologize for putting you on the spot. <laughs> I was... <laughs> right on. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for being here. Ah, I apologize for putting you on the spot. We didn't. We didn't set. We didn't set all that up. That was. A... <laughs> yes. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Let, this is my final question, and you've already kind of answered it, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what What should we do when when it doesn't feel like the promises are being fulfilled? When it doesn't seem like God is faithful? We know He is. My head's telling me He is. I've learned He is, but it just doesn't feel like it. So what's what's the solution? What do I do? To, in that situation, yes, sir. Right. Right. Right on. And I know, you know, I've seen, I've seen some terrible things, you know, Yes. Uh, he really wants the best for his children. Right. Yeah, I, I like what you said. We have to go back to the fundamentals. So many times we say, I need a kind of a special revelation or something, something profound. It's, it's usually just back to what you kind of know and just be and reminded of it. And I think about 
you know, professional athletes. They're the best athletes in the world, and yet they train. They go to training camp, and shortstops are grounding little simple fielders. They're paid millions. Best shortstop in the world is still doing the basics, the fundamentals. And we as Christians, maybe the most mature, still has to go back to 101, reminded of the, the simplicity of the gospel. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Good example of faith. One of the one of the classic examples. Yeah. It's good. Yes, ma'am. I think when you have a history of walking with God, you can look back and see how God was faithful in other situations. So often in the scriptures, you see them rehearsing mm-hmm. what God has already done in the past, and then. That gives courage and gives for what he's going to do in this situation. And yes. I need that every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's a lot of what's behind when Paul talks about, I rejoice in my suffering. It's not because he enjoys it, but it's because when he comes through it and he still has faith and still believes, that strengthens him because he says, man, this faith must be authentic. Mm-hmm. I just went through this. So, so the more track record you have, the more suffering, the more time you've been through and yet come out believing it just strengthens you more and more and more uh and you say there's it's got to be authentic it's got to be real look at the track record and god's faithfulness in it so good good point any other thoughts on that yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely track record of the scriptures yes sir Right on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Pray. The Lord taught us to pray, right? Deliver us from the evil one. All right. Secondly, we're going to talk about faithful worship. And so the pattern here is. Uh, you know, God is faithful, and therefore his people respond with faithfulness. And I'm just highlighted two aspects from Ezra. Next week in Nehemiah, I'm going to follow the same pattern, basically. Faith, therefore, we respond with faithfulness. And I'm going to point out a couple of areas that are similar, related, but a little different than these two. But we're talking here about faithful worship. And I didn't just sort of randomly select the topic of worship. It's It's really largely what Ezra is about, and it's largely what Second Chronicles was about. So let's look back at chapter 1 again. Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So just that phrase, he has charged me to build him a house. So that's that's the whole point. Like, go build a house. And then in verse 3, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. It's about rebuilding the house. And then we see that same phrase in verse 5. Everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord. So that phrase, build the house, rebuild the house, what is that a reference to? Of course, it's a reference to the temple. It's like building, rebuilding the temple. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, they go back, and the first thing they do is rebuild the altar. 
where they can perform the sacrifices. You know, at this point in time, they weren't just supposed to sacrifice anywhere. Right? The only prescribed place for them was Jerusalem. Any other place was wrong at this point in time in, in salvation history. And so it's significant to go back to Jerusalem, the place where they were authorized to perform the sacrifice. You can't just perform the sacrifice in Persia. It's not an option. You've got to go to Jerusalem. And that's a part of the punishment. They've been removed, exiled, unable to go back. So to go back is significant. Why? Just because it's the homeland? No. <laughs> right? That's, that may be a part of it, but that's not ultimate. What it's ultimately about is going back to rebuild the house in Jerusalem. Um, so they go back for the purpose. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. We just have this picture of the people worshiping. Uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the joyful sound from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So they're worshiping, and there's a lot of rejoicing, and it's loud. But notice it also says there's some weeping. Why? It says, some of the old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice. They had a memory of what it had been. You know, so part of it may be they're just looking at this and going, this just isn't like it used to be. And maybe there was a not going to be. Or maybe it was just nostalgia. You know, you ever go back to your hometown, and it's just not... It doesn't feel like what I remember, right? We, we go back and visit family, and it's in the town where we grew up, and I always have to drive past the house that I grew up in, and my kids are like, oh, Dad, we've been past this before. <laughs> we got to take a trip down the street, see the house. And then I'll tell them, like, you see that tree? We know, Dad. You know? <laughs> we know all the stories. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it always seems so, you know, small. It's like, this isn't how I remember it, you know? The, the yard seems small. The house seems small. And I remember thinking, as a kid, it seemed big, and the street seemed big. This is where I rode my bike and learned how to ride, and it seemed enormous. And now you go back, and it just seems kind of, I don't know, just kind of like depressing. And, uh, yeah, walking in your elementary school. Yeah, right on. It's just different than what you're... And uh, so part of it could just be natural. <laughs> it's just a natural, you build things up, you remember things being better than they actually are. Uh, another part of it could be, once again, they just see it and go, this just isn't what it used to be. Um, I, it, I think it's also possible, I mentioned this on Sunday, they, they're they just reminded of like how long it took to get back here. You know, boy, it's such a waste. You know, you ever back at your life and go, well, it's such a waste, I wasted that. You know, it was a, what was I thinking? Uh, or another possibility in Ezra 9.9, they refer to themselves as slaves. So they still feel the reality that they're not sovereign. They're not a sovereign nation. They're very much under the thumb. They're only able to be there because a pagan king has said, you can go. And they know, you know, things can change and it can be undone. Um, and by the way, it's longer before Rome comes on the scene. And they are under the thumb of Rome, right? And being told what... Uh, what to do and where to go and, 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 they're, and they're dealing with the power struggle and political struggle um, and so they're, they're right to anticipate this isn't going to be like it used to be this isn't going to be like it used to be under the days of King David you're, you're about to have Rome come in and set up shop so they're right to weep at some level and, and on Sunday I think there's a principle here for us our worship today while on one hand does certainly hopefully has joy and uh, and uh, it's good and it's it's you know delightful there's still a, a weeping to the worship right what are, what are some reasons or or what are some reasons that our worship is mixed with both joy and yet some weeping some tears have you ever experienced worship with joy and tears maybe i should ask it like that Is it hard to worship when you, there are tears or easier to worship with tears? Easier? Yeah, I think it would be easier. Because, uh, 
Ja. Yeah, maybe kind of a sense of desperation. Yeah, right on. Any other thoughts on that? Conviction. Conviction of sin. Yeah. Or family members who aren't Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a sorrow there. Yeah. Have you ever been hard to ever hard to sing words like you are faithful, you are good in the middle of like it sure doesn't feel like it? Not for Kevin. <laughs> Maybe for some, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Worshiping with both joy and tears? Sure. And your emotions get so involved that not only can you have joy and rejoicing and ecstasy in worship, but also because of all that sometimes, for me at least, it ends up in tears. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. Possibly they have been weeping, saying, wow, God has brought us back. Right. Building the temple again. Maybe maybe there was a combination. Sure, sure. Yeah. Because I feel that sometimes. Yeah. Right on. When right God on. shows up. And so there can kind of be a mixture of emotion. There can be a it can be all mixed together. We are we are emotional people and that's okay. It's humbling. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah, that's good. And I don't know about you, but sometimes there's there's certain songs. I don't know if it's a phrase or an image that that it'll, it'll, it can kind of get me. One of them for me is the before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. It is it's a very powerful language, and sometimes it's like whoa, kind of gets me, hits me. All right. So the point is this. God is faithful. He restores his people to the land. But the purpose is not just, okay, now you have the land. The purpose is worship. He restores them to the land so that they can worship, which is the whole point. Um, and I, I mentioned the the Damar Hamlin being injured and it's kind of a wake-up call. And every, all of a sudden, everybody's like, this is all that matters is life. And, and they were, it's a right instinct. Like, life is all that matters. And to be another NFL player who was injured this past week, and it's a player that I know. Uh, his name is Peyton Hillis, and he's from the same town as I am. And when he was in sixth grade, he was in my Bible study, so I, I know him, or I knew him in that way. Uh, but he played in the, he played for the University of Arkansas Razorbacks, uh, along with Darren McFadden and Peyton Hillis. And then he went to the NFL and made the cover of Madden football. So that's how good he was. And after that, they say they call it the Madden curse. He sort of fell off. And, but he was at the ocean with his kids, and several kids were out in the ocean, and a riptide carried him away, and he went to go save them, and he did, but he ingested a ton of uh, salt water, and today, like six days later, he's still in ICU, and they're saying they're not sure if his kidneys are going to, uh, you know, recover. Uh, so a very serious situation. It has to be close to my heart because I happen to know him. But it was kind of interesting, two, two NFL players in ICU and hanging on for their life, and, and uh, one of them made big-time news. Peyton Hillis, if you look it up, he's, it's, it makes some news, not quite as much as the, the present-day uh, NFL player. But uh, either way, the, the point that I was making was sometimes we're just sort of jarred and reminded of what really And I think... One of the things, if we look at the Bible, one of the things that really matters is worship. Like that's why we're here. It's the purpose of all things to glorify God. Um, and, and I think it's good for us to be reminded of that. Like this is why we're here. This is what's important. This is priority number one. Why, why should worship be of highest priority for us? What are some reasons? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's why God created us. It's why God redeemed us. So it's our very it's that it's our very purpose. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's good. That's good. This is how God says, I want you to respond in this way. So faithful to respond to him the way he tells us to respond. We're worshiping. That's good. That's a great point. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. We, we were created to worship, so we are going to worship something. We are worshiping creatures. The question is just, what are we worshiping? And, you know, you make a good point. Uh, if I'm not worshiping God, I'm worshiping something other than him. There's all kinds of things that come with that. It's unwise. It's not going to really satisfy. It's going to lead to my death. Uh, there's all kinds of problems that come when I don't worship the one I'm created to worship. So it's not just kind of a neutral issue. It's a life or death issue. Good point. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. It won't satisfy, ultimately. And yeah, I just heard a. His really, uh, John Piper was being interviewed, and he's talking about the the idea of retirement, and he's like, he was kind of criticizing that the con the American concept of like I'm going to retire and do nothing, and just do nothing, and he was talking about you know I'm just going to retire and get a uh, he was just talking he's like it's not going to satisfy you he's like a few years in playing golf isn't going to be fun a few years in fishing's not if that's all you're doing it's it's not going to satisfy you he's he's big on this idea of don't waste your life invest your life it was in his way it was pretty funny (laughs) he had a classic he has a classic line where he talks about he read a reader's digest story about a couple who were to Punta Gorda, Florida, to collect seashells. And he says, imagine standing before God, and God says, what have you done for me? And you show him your seashell collection. <laughs> this is what I just read. Punta Gorda, Florida. <laughs> I lowered my handicap by three strokes. <laughs> All right. Um, how would you, I think we've answered this question. How are we doing on time? Um, where do we want to go here? What does it look like for us to prioritize worship? So if you're talking to a young Christian and you're saying, you really ought to prioritize worship, this is really important, it's what you're created for, redeemed for, I mean, what does that look like? What does it look like for prioritize worship? Right. So part of the answer is, what I'm hearing you say, and it's right on, is there's got it's a life of worship. There's a worshipful attitude of the heart that's got a, that's not just kind of a once a week thing. No. Right. What are some other ways? Yes, ma'am. Explain what you mean. I, I I know what you mean, but explain it, because it's good. Um, well, I mean, for me, it's not a problem, because I'm so disciplined, and, um, you know. But it has to be a, a Saturday night decision. You have to make that decision on Saturday night, because you're going to go to bed on time, or you're going to get up on time, or prioritize for the life. Right, yes. Because we, we prioritize things that are important to us. If I'm going to go skiing, I, or I get my stuff, set the alarm clock, have it all ready, because it's important. Like, I'm, I'm going to do this. 
but if my mentality is, well, if I happen to wake up and I happen to feel like it, and you know the weather happens to be okay, then maybe I'll I'll go. I probably won't. Yes, sir. Yeah, right on. Yes, sir. If you're praying without ceasing, you're offensive from God. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's that idea of always worshiping. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We're always in a worshipful mindset. At least we're supposed to be. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think we tend to compartmentalize it. Where worship is this, work is that, my marriage is this, my kids are that. And then we have to prioritize. I think it's all things should be subjugated to worship. Your life is your worship to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so everything else is relegated to being No. Yeah, good point. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. She said tithing uh, because that's an issue that does come up in Nehemiah. And, um, and and once again, you kind of similar pattern. God's faithful. They respond with faithful worship and faithful lives. And, and one of the specific areas he really leans into is the taking care of the, the storehouse and uh, and it's you know specifically tithing. And so you're, you're right. Our money. Jesus talks about money a lot. Our money, where we spend our money, reveals a lot about what we value and what we love. And if we are committed to giving to the Lord, to the Lord's work, that, then our heart follows. Is where we give our money. So I do, th- I do think there's something very powerful, practical, that uh, a, a lot of us, including me, wouldn't have made the connection without having read Nehemiah. So good job making the connection. Yeah. And that was when you were preaching, too. Yeah, I think that's good. I, you know, I think also I, I, I like to think and talk in terms of disciplines. You know, going back to the kind of the, the sport analogy, you know, in spring training, the shortstop fielding the grounders, it may be boring. It may not feel like it. I may, man, let's just take off today. But there's something about doing You know you're supposed to do it. At some level, you just do it. Some days you enjoy it, and it's great, and the weather's great. And, boy, well, that was fun. Some days, not fun. I don't feel like it. You stick with it, and then the freedom and the joy is found, and you've done it, and then at some level, you excel, you enjoy it, you delight in it, grounding that, the ball, uh, you know, making a big play. It's like, well, this is fun, and so, you know, there's moments and days when it's it's more fun, it's more enjoyable. There's other days when it's like, 
if I'm honest, I really don't feel like this. But I, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I know it's ultimately good for me. I know it's going to result in good things. So, I mean, to me, that's a helpful metaphor, so to speak. You hear about the greatest athletes practice the artist. Yeah. And then when you're watching a game, the greatest one ma- makes it look easy. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, in the Christian life, it is a discipline, <clears throat> and we're told to hide the word of God in our heart. Right. So we're constantly able to pull us. God gives it to us if we're putting it into our minds. Our mind is, is the battlefield. Right. And, uh, but He gives us scriptures at appropriate times. Yes, and then we meditate on that. Or, yeah. Or quote it back to ourselves. And David spoke to. Yeah. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Yeah. We can do that. Right. We can pray his prayer. Right. Very good. Good stuff. Yes. Hey, uh, try to answer his question. Sure. Right. Yeah, very good. Very good. Okay, we are kind of in a unique place here because I have a third point, but it's a lot. <laughs> and it's heavy. It's heavy. And we're like a few minutes away from 7.30, so... Uh, we, we could skip. Well, what's that? Talk fast. Talk fast. All right. <laughs> what's that? Let you out early. Um, let me. So let me do this. Um, yeah, it just it just too much to just wade in briefly. So let me just ask a couple of kind of clarify or not clarify. Let me ask a couple of closing questions. And the point of it is this idea of faithful living. Faithful living. And basically, uh, Ezra calls the people to radical radical faith, radical living, and, and it's, it's a huge call, and they respond. And it's, it's a weighty issue, and therefore we don't have time to wade into it right now. But let me ask this question. What are some examples of radical steps that God might be calling us to take to be faithful to him? What's an example of perhaps something that God is may, might be calling us to do or not do that that is kind of radical? Whoa, you know, that's weird. That's strange. That's uh, that, that God might, might call a, a Christian today to do and expect him, him or her to follow faithfully. Faithful living. Just obedience to his word. Yeah. And anything in particular? <laughs> that's pretty radical. <laughs> Obey God's word. Very radical. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Yeah, and it's pretty radical. I mean, I think if you took a non-Christian and you said, I give 10% of my income to the church, no matter what, I think they'd go, whoa, like, there's a lot, there's a lot you could do with that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Yeah. Right on. You know it's a spiritual group when tithing keeps getting brought up and I'm not the one bringing it up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I planted all of it. <laughs> the missionary, yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a principle there. Any other? Yes, sir. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> I was unsure. Yeah. And not not to embarrass you. I mean, I think it's a great point of what you just said. Uh, not to embarrass you, but you do something that a lot of Christians don't do that requires radical faith. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And uh, I don't want to embarrass him, but is a very faithful to personal evangelism. He 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 evangelizes a lot of people. Yeah. It's a way to go. Um, okay, here's the final question. Um, we're talking here about God's faithfulness, how we're supposed to respond. God is faithful even in times that we're not. That's good news. Um, he was faithful to his people even when they were not. So how would you to someone who says God's faithful even when we're not, therefore, I don't have to be. Like, I don't, I have no motivation to be faithful. He's faithful. How would you address, correct, uh, address that person who says that? Yes, Paul? So we sin that grace may abound, but may it never be. Yeah. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament, yeah. yeah. Read the Bible, see how that works out for the people, yeah. Try that in America, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, is there any other? Yeah. Does that ever work? Yeah. yeah. Matthew 7, 21 23, not Yeah, right on. Yeah, I like the way you said that because sometimes faith can be thought of as just kind of a bare mental assent, like trying to check the box. But true, genuine, biblical faith, which is required to save, is authentic faith. It's not perfect, but it's authentic, it's genuine, and therefore, you know, there's certain characteristics to it. It's a repentant faith. It is an authentic faith. It's a, it's a lasting faith. And it's that that's the that, so we're saved by faith alone. Absolutely. But it's it's faith. <laughs> Biblical faith. It's not just, it's just I check a box. Yeah. And you don't please God by just going and doing whatever you do. Right. Yeah. Well we're faithful. God is faithful, so when he says he will judge, you matter in faith, right? And he will not be mocked. And right. So when he comes back to judge the world. Those, those folks that aren't really faithful are going to feel it. Yeah, and we and we our faith, we, we're trusting he's going to judge. It's going to be a good, a righteous judgment, and and my only right way to stand before him is through Christ. And if I really understand what Christ did for me, then I, I'm also going to be motivated by that to want to be. It's a, yeah, it's a, yeah, good, good, good stuff. Any other thoughts on any of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good stuff. Very good. Thank you for the discussion. Would anybody be willing to close us here with a word of prayer?
Thank you. Thank you.